Clemente Shorty Aguirre grew up in Honduras, but in 2001, when rival street gangs demanded that he pick a side or die, he found himself with no choice but to run. He escaped to the United States, crossing our southern border illegally, and ultimately he found work as a cook living in Seminole County, Florida in a trailer park, where he formed friendly ties with various neighbors. But on June 17th of 2004, Shorty was hanging out into the wee hours of the morning when he went to his friend Cheryl Williams' trailer to grab a beer. And there, he found himself inside of a gruesome crime scene. The trailer had been ransacked and was covered in blood. Cheryl and her mother Carol had been stabbed repeatedly and were dead. He checked the bodies for signs of life, thereby inadvertently tampering with the crime scene. Knowing that nothing would bring them back and fearing deportation or worse, he chose to stay quiet initially, but later that day, Clemente came forward about his discovery. His immigration status and unwitting crime scene tampering made him a prime suspect, and with the deadly combination of an ineffective public defender and the prosecution's tunnel vision, Clemente was convicted and sent to death row. In this episode, recorded at the Innocence Network Conference in Atlanta, we speak with Clemente Shorty Aguirre and one of his lead post-conviction attorneys, Maria Deliberato, who, along with a list of mostly pro bono private counsel, would properly reinvestigate the crime and test the 197 pieces of crime scene evidence that had never been tested for DNA, ultimately excluding Clemente. They even found new evidence that would lead to the identity of the woman who was almost certainly the true perpetrator and who confessed to the crime on numerous occasions, Cheryl's own daughter, Samantha Williams. Shorty spent over 14 long years in prison, most of it on death row, for a crime he simply did not commit. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today's show is going to take you on a journey that you will probably never forget. Um, and not because of anything I'm going to say, but because of the story you're going to hear. And today we have as our very special guest, Clemente, a.k.a. Shorty Aguirre from Honduras, right? Um, who was wrongfully convicted in Florida the double murder and who served 14 years and four months on death row. Um, Shorty, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you for having me. As I always say, I'm, I'm sorry you're here, but I'm happy you're here. So you know how that goes. Likewise. And with him is one of his incredible, we'll just call it what it is, dream team of lawyers, Maria Deliberato, which is a great name for a lawyer, by the way. <laughs> Not for nothing. <laughs> it's perfect. And so, uh, Maria, um, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, Shorty, you were, a, you were sort of a star in your native country, right? Uh, I guess so you can say that. I was a very likable, friendly, played soccer, won a singing competition representing in the school. I was told it was like the American Idol of Honduras. Is that right? Yeah, it were called championships, and it was between the schools. So it was knowledge, it was dancing, and it was singing. So I performed, and I, and I won first place. Wow. And how old were you? I was 10 years old. 10 years old. So amazing start to a crazy journey. And is it true that as a result of you winning this competition, the gangs kind of left you alone for a while, right? For a little bit. Since I was going to school in those times, it really wasn't that strong as a gang in that period of time. When growing up and going to high school, I was well known because I played soccer there. But my problem was I live in a neighborhood with a rival gang, and I play and go to school where the other gang had power up. So it was very controversial because one would say I belong to one, and the other one would say I belong to the other one, which... It wasn't the case. And in fact, you were able to belong to neither of them because of the status that you enjoyed being sort of this celebrity in your area, right? Basically, and because my mother, too, she, she didn't play. And I have this select group of friends. There was seven of us. It didn't attract to us anything about no gang at all. But then, as I understand it, when you got a little older, the gangs, you were going to join the gang or get killed, basically, right? Yeah, they told me they weren't playing. I was... Uh, harassed and uh, put guns in my face. I live in a neighborhood full of MS-13s, and I got to go to school where the 18s live. So 
when I get out of the territory from the 13s, the 18s grabbed me and made me undress in public to see if I didn't have tattoos belonging to the other gang. Ultimately, you decided you had to leave because uh, your life was in danger, right? But what was it that made you, because that's a big step to leave your country and it's a very important story to tell right now, especially, right, with what's going on in this country. Because you had a crazy journey ahead of you, but what was it that happened? Well, um, it was in 2001, um, January or February around there. I was with my fiancé uh, to be at that moment, and the taxi pulled up in front of my house. I'm sitting down outside, and they got these raincoats, these long rain black coats, and put an AK-47 and put it in my face. The driver stepped down and, uh, and say, we ain't playing no more. Tick-tock, tick-tock. In that particular moment in time, my mama came out of the door and say, what you doing? I say, mom, go inside. What good do that she is out here and I got a gun in my face and my girlfriend is holding me for dear life. I'm like, calm down. So they left. And then you say tick-tock, tick-tock, meaning the clock is running. You need to tighten up and join or else. In December, a few months back, they killed one of my best friends because he didn't want to join. Uh, they killed him on December 20th, 2000. So it was very, very scary. My mother said, you go to your grandma. They sent me to Nicaragua, and in Nicaragua, it's no place to live. It's like, it's more poverty than it was in Honduras. So in 2002, my sister came from the United States already with her residency, and we went from there. I need to come to the United States. I cannot live in Nicaragua for poverty. I cannot live in my native country, because if I don't join a gang, they will kill me. So the only way I got out of here is go to the United States. Already, everything you've been through is enough for someone to go through, but this isn't even the beginning. How did you get from Nicaragua all the way to eventually swimming across the Rio Grande? I came to Mexico, and I buy some papers, and I learned a national anthem of Mexico and history. I lived there for a couple of months, and I flew to Mexico City and there to New Laredo, and from there, I went to a bar where, uh, when I got in there, as this coyote, back then it was coyote, so it was no cartels and stuff like that, passing people. And this coyote say, okay, you have $1,600 on you? No, but I can call. So we arranged that he is going to pass me through all the way to Laredo, Texas. So he want me to swing with this, uh, the thing that go inside the tire. Like inner tube, right? So because he asking me, can you swim? And this moment in time, I feel like I'm the Michael Fellow of the river. I didn't know how big Rio Grande really was. You see, I'm picturing a river that is just like my grandma. Like a stream. Yeah, I mean, something that you can pass in two minutes. I never thought it was going to take me 17 minutes almost to pass the river across. That I almost drowned in there. You know, so... He told us to take the clothes off, so we did, uh, but we keep the underwear on. When he turned back, he's like, what you're doing? This is no gay shit. Take your underwear off, because when you run, you need to be dry. If you wet, it's going gonna, gonna to hurt you, and it's going to slow you down. Believe me, I'm doing this for a long time. So we did. Put it in a plastic bag, put it in my mouth, start swimming. We make it to the other side somehow. God only he could help me to pass through that river because it was so strong. And uh, we dry it off. He say, every paper that you have, every picture that you have, throw it away. Every money that you have, throw it away. You cannot bring anything with you to the United States unless it's American dollars. I didn't have any American dollars, so, you know, it was 50 pesos of Mexico, so I throw it away. And uh, he said, when I tell you so, follow me and run. When we make it to the other side, it was like 95 people in there. You know, females, men, young people from Ecuador, Colombia, Costa Rica, you name it. So we saw an uh, immigration car pass by 
and then another one, and Jimmy say, I ain't waiting here. We're taking off. So I'm taking after him because he got my money. So I'm thinking, I cannot let him go away with my money, you know? How am I going to make it to the other side? And this moment in time, I'm in the United States, but I haven't made it to civilization yet. We take off running, it wasn't 30 seconds, and we hear helicopters, police cars, dogs, and sirens saying, stop, stop, but we're going to shoot. We hear some shots. At this moment in time, everybody else take off running too. And I'm running right next to this guy. So I'm running and I'm asking him where to, where to. And he didn't tell me where to because I think I can outrun him. I really believe I can outrun him. I'm so desperate to pass by. So it's some shots. I don't think they were shouting at us. I think they were shouting to the air so people get scared or whatever. But that's all I hear in my neighborhood. So it really didn't scare me anymore. It was, I'm so used to, or I was so used to. We make it to the fence. And by the time we're going to jump the fence, I just feel this hand in, in my hand and say, Senor, please, my son. It was this woman running next to me with a child in her hand. So I grab the kid, I give it to the next guy, I, I push her up, and then I jump. We went to a house, called my sister, went to Houston, from Houston, came to my sister's house, March 18, 6.15 in the morning. Three months, 16 days after I was out of my house. You three months and 16 days, starting in Nicaragua, right? Started from Honduras, January 2nd, oh. all the way to March 18, 2003. And you ended up in Florida in a little town, right? Yes, in uh, Altamont Spring. So you end up in Florida. You got a job, right? Yes. My boss saw me uh, cutting lawn and shaving some kind of palms, and he liked the way I work. So he offered me a job as a dishwasher. Washing what? dishes for a couple of months. And one day, the cooks were really busy. So my mom teach me how to cook, and I was six, seven years old. And everybody was busy, and they saw me cooking for me. So my boss saw and said, oh, okay. So you can cut, you can prep. I think you're going to be good in the prep line. So they made me do salads, bread, and prep everything for the line, cooked. So now you're moving up in the world a little bit at a time, right? Going from yeah. the cutting trees or whatever to the, to the kitchen and now doing the prep work and starting to use your skills that you had uh, developed as a, as a cook. Um, so things are looking up, right? Right. And where were you living? I moved from my sister in Altamont Spring to Longwood in the trailer park uh, at 434. And the trailer park has a very important role in this story. Um, this is where the shit really hits the fan. Maria, do you want to sort of set the table here? Because you've worked on this case for 10 years. You know every single detail of what happened. Absolutely. I mean, I don't even really know where to start. I mean, I used to be a prosecutor, actually, before I did criminal defense 13 years ago. And so from that perspective, getting this case, the fact that they saw him as a suspect, shut their eyes to any possible other alternative is to me the biggest travesty here. But I'll sort of set the stage, I guess, in the sense of he was living next door to the victims. It was a trailer park on Vagabond Way. And that was the name of the street. And he had socialized with them on more than one occasion. Well, and this was a woman, her mother, and her daughter living together in this trailer, right? That's correct, yes. Um, and Clemente lived with two other men about his age. Um, they were both cousins. And so they were about the same age as the daughter. And her brother also lived in the trailer for periods of time. So sort of all people of his age. Um, Clemente at the time, obviously, he, you can hear him today speaking English. He didn't speak any English back then. He taught himself English in prison, which is a great story that he does need to tell at some point, how he taught himself English. It's one of my favorite stories that he tells. But he didn't speak any English then. But, you know, he was able to communicate enough with them they shared parties, they shared drinks, sort of a friendly neighborhood scene. The day that he was arrested, the mother and grandmother were killed. And the morning that their bodies were discovered, Clemente had gone there um, in the morning, as he often did. He had been out with friends the night before. They always were known to have lots and lots of beer. If you look at the crime scene video, I mean, there was just thousands and thousands of 
cans. And in Florida, alcohol is sold in all the grocery stores, but not until certain hours. So the grocery store wasn't open yet. And Clemente was a, you know, in his early 20s. We can all remember what it's like to be able to party all night in your early 20s. And uh, he had finished a hard day's work and was letting loose with some friends and wanted to keep the party going. So he had just gone over there for a beer, as he had done many times. They had an open-door policy. Sorry to interrupt you, but let's turn it over to you, Clemente, because this is such a nightmare. I mean, I've told your story so many times, but you actually lived it. So can you take us back to that day? I've been drinking all day. I'm going to go home. And I went home, but I wanted another beer. So I went inside, and I I didn't find it, so that's why I waited until daytime to go to the next door and ask for a beer, like I had done dozens of times before. What time was it when you went over to the It was like six something in the morning. Six in the morning, right. And so you went over there, as you've done so many times, to scoop up a few more beers, whatever, right? What did you encounter when you got there? I tried to knock the door, but when I touched it, it pushed open, but it didn't open all the way. It's strange because I've been in the house, I mean, if I want to give you a number, over 700 times, right? So I know that door opened all the way. And this time didn't. So I pushed it, and it, it didn't go further than what it was. So I looked, it was like a little window, and I saw Cherry Williams there, uh, body. This was the mom? That was the mother, yes. Samantha's mother, yes. And Carol's daughter. So you saw the body laying, so that's why you couldn't open the door, because the body was blocking it. was blocking it, yes, sir. And so now you see the body, but is there blood everywhere? Or what's the first thing that you... Her body is there. I just jump immediately inside without thinking, right? And she was too close to by the door. So I had to close the door and touch her uh, wrist, looking for a pulse. So I said, maybe I'm too drunk that I don't feel it. So I pick her up and put her on top of my legs into her neck. Because in the position she was, I couldn't touch her neck in in that moment. And ask her to wake up. And she didn't. At this point, did you see there was blood? and there was Yes, everywhere. Now it's like a horror movie scene. So I'm asking somebody here, and I, I find the grandmother of her wheelchair, almost under the table. So I went and touched her too. She was dead. And I hear this noise, and I'm asking, is somebody here? And with that, I walk in the house, all my footprints were there, and it was, it was crazy. You, you found the murder weapon, right? I did. I did. I saw it when I saw the first victim. It was uh, in the top of a beer box, but I didn't touch it then. I touched it until I heard the noise. Later, I found out it was a dog there, but I know I ain't crazy. I heard the noise. So anyway, I went and grabbed the knife, like, like a dumbass, and uh, asking somebody here, and I walked, and I went to Samantha's bedroom, and uh, everything was everywhere in the house. Chairs were fell down, clothes was everywhere, everything was like a, like a hurricane passed by there. And then I walked to the next room, but I didn't went in there because I found Cheryl already, so. I said, oh my God, what am I going to do? So I took off running. He got running again. Anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try-on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people. What do you think? This, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suited me the best. And then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses... 
and you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone, and then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com slash conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try-on. And now, introducing Scout by Warby Parker. And Scout is for you people, for everyone that wears contact lenses. And here's the thing. They're comfortable, they're breathable, and they're affordable. They're daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. It's everything you want from a contact lens. Order a trial pack that includes six days' worth of contacts for only $5. Unreal. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more. Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up just like a game-winning play on the field and almost got away with it. The sneak follows a twisting story of a once great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. This is a really bad scenario on every level. I mean, you've got now the murder victim's blood on you, right? Because yes, you've been I'm... trying to help them, trying to check and see if they're alive. Obviously, that was hopeless because they were dead. You've got your fingerprints on the knife, right? Because you picked up the well, knife. Well, I pick it up, yes. Right. I mean, this couldn't be any worse. You can't make it harder for your lawyers, right, in this case. I mean, <laughs> this is circumstantial evidence. It doesn't get much Worse than that, and I'm sure when it eventually came to your arrest, they must have looked at it like, okay, well, so we don't really have to work too hard on this one. We got this guy dead to rights. But what did you do? So now you, you ran. Where did you run to? I ran to my house. I, uh, I'm debating, am I going to call the police or not? And the reason I'm debating is I know if police officer arrest you, they call immigration on you. It's a fact. So they did. I mean, and now I'm going to be deported for it? So I know I didn't do nothing wrong, even though everything sounds wrong so far. I didn't kill nobody. Anyway, so I took a shower, and I'm like, I can't call police. I decided against it because I don't want to be deported. It was my fear. It was my fear, a legitimate fear because I'm running from my life. You know, I'm running for my life. I don't want to be killed in my country because I don't want to be a criminal. Right, what an irony, right? You were running away from the criminals to come here to start a better life, and now, now you're going to be accused of a crime that you didn't commit in the first place. And the options are all bad, right? You're either going to go and get deported or you're going to get convicted. I mean, you must have known as well that things were looking pretty bad. If you call the police, the first person they're going to suspect. We know that in general, in many cases anyway, the person who finds the body is the person they first usually... Suspect. But honest, honestly speaking, I wasn't afraid they are going to be accused of the murder. I really wasn't because I know I didn't do it. I was more afraid that they, if I call police, they're going to report me. So what happened, Maria? <clears throat> sure. So, I mean, he can tell it as well, but the police eventually came because Samantha's boyfriend, which we'll later get to in more detail, actually was told by Samantha to come to the house that morning to get her laundry out of the dryer was the purported reason, or out of the washer, and to check on her mom, mom and grandmother because she had a bad feeling. So he comes to the scene about 9 a.m. He finds the bodies. He, of course calls 911, and then the police come. So by a couple of hours go by, the police are there, and, you know, normally they're knocking or canvassing the neighborhood, so they knock on the door of Clemente's trailer, and first knock on the door, you know, they didn't, they just said, we don't know anything. We don't know anything. And the police that knocked on his door, nobody spoke Spanish, so they were all English-speaking, and everybody in Clemente's house then only spoke Spanish. So there was also a language barrier. And then later in the day, I mean, Clemente can tell you why he felt compelled to come forward, and then sort of how that backfired on him when he came forward and tried to tell what happened, 
as you said, they immediately were like, great, we've got our guy. And they just started accusing him of murder pretty immediately and threatening him. There was a female Spanish-speaking detective, finally, who came on scene. And Clemente wanted to talk to her. He felt like he could trust her with the full story. I came forward. I say, this is the best country in the world. I'm telling the truth. But they're going to investigate, and they're going to find out the truth eventually. Uh, so I went and I say, I found them dead, you know. And as soon as I say that, I need to speak with somebody who speaks Spanish. And it was two people behind her telling her, get him, get him. When I asked her to talk alone, the uh, investigator told me, if you touch her, I'm going to fuck you up. I don't know what that word means, but the fist that he put in my face told me everything I need to know. And I'm like looking crazy. And, and I say, no, no, I'm not going to do anything. It also probably should be noted, Clemente got his shorty nickname because he's four foot eleven. So not exactly your threatening, imposing criminal. But also you have such a sort of a sweet, gentle face. Mm -hmm. I mean, like if I was three feet eleven, I wouldn't be scared of you. You know what I mean? Like, right. Like, so I, they bring me this investigator and soon I tell him about the first victim. He started accusing me of rape. I know I didn't rape nobody. I know I didn't kill nobody. So I told him. Well, uh, he mentioned something like, I don't need you to finish or have an orgasm in her. I just need you to penetrate her. And I got your DNA. I said, go for it. Take my DNA. Because I know I'm innocent. But there was a swap. They, they, they took your fingernails. They took my fingernails and she went to dip. I believe now ain't nobody can take me out of this. She was trying to cut me. When they took his fingertip swabs, they do the scrapings, they like jammed it under his nails. She went way too deep. So you can see it's like you have to scrap a little bit. You don't have to go too deep. They're always this short, always. Because I work in the kitchen. So, you know, I'm always with short nails and short hair. So you think they were trying to cut him because... I think the perception that he tells the story, was there was a lot of hatred and animosity from the police from the beginning towards him because he was not in this country legally because they believed that he murdered these two women, one of them in a wheelchair. And so they just treated him. You know, this whole theme of the conference that we're attending is presumption of innocence. And there was none of that for Clemente. Right. And just for context, we're recording in a conference room in Atlanta where the Innocence Network conference is being held. So there's an amazing, amazing group here of over 200 exonerees and hundreds of lawyers and social workers and activists. And it's an amazing, amazing place to be. And as you said, the theme is presumption of innocence, which is, well, it's part of American jurisprudence. It's in the Constitution, right? But it doesn't actually work the way it's supposed to and certainly didn't in this case. Right. So they interrogate you. You didn't have a lawyer with you at the time? In that moment in time, I say, why do I need a lawyer? I didn't do nothing. Yeah, and that's a common thing. I mean, you'd be surprised how many people, even people who grew up in America, who maybe have higher education degrees or whatever, they, they think the same thing. Well, if I just go in and tell the truth. But when you get in an adversarial situation like you were in, it changes very quickly. And people are not expecting it. You had no reason to expect it. But that's exactly what happened. And so at what point did, did you become aware that you were now looking at the potential of being, well, arrested, tried, and convicted, a week, possibly even sentenced to death. A week later, they come and take my fingerprints, and they told me they found my left palm print in the knife, which I say is impossible. And say, how come? You touched the knife. Yeah, but I'm right-handed. I'm not going to grab a knife with my left hand. So they charged me with murder, and they told me, we're going to be asking for the death penalty. We're going to ask the state to ask for the death penalty. Send you to death row. You've now been arrested. You're locked up in the local jail, I assume? Yeah, Seminole County. How long did it take from that point to go to trial? 22 months. So you were in jail for 22 months? Yes, sir. Seminole County Jail in Sanford got to be one of the most disgusting places to be at. The food is terrible because it's private. You see, Seminole County is private, so they run it the way they want to. They beat you up, they put you in a place where there's no camera, they beat you up, and ain't nothing. And all that happened to you? All that happened to me. 
because you were the most notorious guy in the jail at this time, right? Your name is in the papers, you're accused of a double murder, you're an illegal immigrant, you've got the whole, you know, the yeah, whole... because I'm this brown little guy who apparently killed two white people. By the time I got taken to trial, I was found guilty in one hour, 15 minutes, maybe. The jury? The jury, yes, sir. The jury was out for an hour and 15 minutes, yeah, right? The trial lasted maybe four or five days. I mean, the criminal trial. Uh, the sentencing, like another four days around there. In Florida, it's the penalty phase and the guilt phase are separate. So yeah, it's, it's two different trials, basically. So who represented you at trial? Uh, the Public Defender's Office of Seminole County. And did they mount any kind of a defense? No whatsoever. No, no defense? They did present a case on my, he did it because he drunk, he did it because he did, he did it, you know. I didn't do nothing. You're trying to kill me for something I didn't do. I didn't do nothing. I am not going to take this. To me, it was not conceivable that I am going to accept you calling me a killer and I'm there and I'm not going to stand up and call you a liar. Even you, my attorney. I don't care. I didn't do nothing. So you don't believe me, it's after you. He never believed me, man. He didn't talk to nobody. I was in the bar until 3.30 in the morning with like 32 people. He didn't talk to no one of them. Wait, what? you were what till 3.30 <clears throat> in the morning? I was in the bar before we went to my friend's house. Right. Until 3.30 in the morning. Because back then they were saying I did a crime three something in the morning, you see. Then they changed it to early in the morning. They never really were able to pin down the time of death because they were relying on Samantha and Mark Van Zandt who said they saw the victims last alive at about 11.30 and then they were found by Mark Van Zandt at 9. So the state was never able to really pin down the time of death. So they just fit it to the time when Clemente had said he went in there. But he did have... A solid alibi until 3.30 in the morning. He was at a local bar. It was actually me who went into that bar for the first time in probably 2010 or so. I mean, it's just unfathomable to me that as a criminal defense attorney, your client tells you where they were, you know, in the preceding 24 hours and you don't even walk into the bar to see like, hey, was he here? Is there anybody that we can talk to? And I mean, when I went in in 2010, so this is, mind you, six years after the murder, it was a Saturday morning, I went in with my investigator and kind of like sat down at the bars, maybe 1130. We didn't tell anyone we were coming, we just went, and the bartender's like, you know, can I help you? And we said, you know, we're looking for Bob Buntruck, who was the owner. She said, oh, he's not here, you know, can I help you? And I said, well, I represent Clemente Aguirre. And it was like, time stood still. I thought she was going to drop the glass she was holding. She was like... Thank God somebody is finally helping him. I know he didn't do it. And to walk into a place six years later and get that kind of reaction, for me, as the lawyer handling his case, was just stunning. And she gave us a treasure trove of, of information that actually led us to who ultimately is the actual killer in this case. So Yeah, and that's I'm getting the chills just thinking about that. What a moment. It's very cinematic the way you described yeah. it. Right? Yeah, I mean, it must have really weighed on the people who knew you and knew that you didn't do it to be walking around with that knowledge and yet knowing that you're on death row. And felt helpless. You know, there was no avenue for them because there was no investigation by either the prosecution or the defense. I mean, it was just a complete collapse of the adversarial system. This particular lady who talked to her, her name is Jamie, and she was across the street almost in front of Samantha's house until five something in the morning, and I haven't make it home yet. Yeah. So she actually ended up alibying him until, you know, 5.30, or sort of alibying the house until then. Because I haven't make it home yet. She, she was from Peter, yeah. rest in peace. So Peter used to live in front of Samantha Williams' house. So she stayed there with him, having a couple of drinks that night, and I'm still on my friend's house with the other two friends. I haven't make it home yet. But the state just fit their time of death with, the time he said he went in the house. Once he said he went in the house, they just had tunnel vision and that was it. They just fit all their evidence to comply with that. Wow. And we're going to get into Samantha in a minute because this is one of those cases and there's probably a dozen maybe that we've profiled on the show where all the signs were there that would have led even a cursory investigation to focus on someone else. But 
it was not necessary because they already had somebody that they wanted. They had somebody who was an easy target and also somebody that apparently they didn't like because they didn't like the fact that you were here illegally or whatever their personal biases were. You know, and it's worth noting, too, that in a case like this, because it's such a terrible, violent crime, the idea that they would allow the perpetrator to remain free just so they can close the case and put yeah. you put your life, you know, which they viewed as expendable, apparently. Yeah. It's really another very serious thing to look at, right? I mean, the people in that community were in danger. Well, they still are, right? And let's talk about that because Samantha, the daughter, whose mother and grandmother were killed, she had been in and out of mental institutions dozens of times, right? In the upwards of like 60. I think she said at the post-conviction hearing she was Baker Acted, which is Florida's involuntary mental health commitment, 60 times. Six zero, that is, folks, yes. right? So, I mean, that's a full-on revolving door in and out of a mental institution. And the fact is that, as I understand it, she actually vocalized her plan when she was in the mental institution. She said that she was going to do this, right, in front of other people. Yeah, there was a... She announced it. A couple of years before the murders on one of her Baker Acts, she had to be restrained because she was so violent in the hospital, kicking, spitting, throwing things. And she said, with her mother right next to her, I'll kill you, I'll kill all of you when I get out. I'll kill you, I'll kill all of you when I get out. And I guess they should have taken her a little more seriously. Um, and, uh, and then we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation at all. And in fact, we know now, too, that her biological evidence was found all over the crime scene, right? Not just because she lived there part-time, but because she had actually done these gruesome deeds and then left her own blood. For yeah, some- eight separate blood stains within inches of the victim's blood throughout the trailer. None of Clemente's DNA. Was so, um, I always thought I stand up in court before my trial and ask for the DNA to be tested. The judge told me I need to be specific. I don't know what is specific me. I thought it's a crime scene. You're going to investigate. You're going to test everything. Because I, this is when I uh, interact with the Innocent Project and they ask me what you want us to test. I say everything. Everything. Her nails. Uh, the cheats, everything. So it was 197 pieces of evidence with blood, which nobody tests ever. So picture yourself accused of a crime which have so many pieces of evidence to be tested for DNA. Neither the state or your attorney tested. And you ask the judge vocally, please, make my attorney test it. And he said, you need to be specific. Why would I be specific? Test everything, right? I want to prove that I didn't do it. Maybe the killer left something behind. It was always, always my argument. You are not going to find my blood there because I didn't do it. If you test it, maybe you find something else, right? They're accusing me of rape. They're accusing me of killing. They're accusing me of all of these things. I'm 4'11". If I stab somebody 129 times, I'm going to have a splatter of blood all over no one drop of splatter blood on me. Everything is contact, like I say it was. My footprint on a round chair that I fall down. A, a mirror was down, and it's not a footprint under it. It's on top of it. They found her DNA in that mirror. She said in trial that that mirror was on the wall. On the wall when she left, but they found her blood there. And no her mine. fingerprint. And her fingerprint. No mine. So, they didn't test nothing. Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule at your own pace and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. 
Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash wrongful. That's betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. Betterhelp.com slash wrongful. So here I go to death row. No English. Beat up. They beating me up all the time because I don't speak English. On death row? In death row, yeah. Who, the guards, the inmates? The guards. No, no, the inmates. The guards. Because they thought I was acting. So they thought that by beating me up, I would speak English then. So I start taking newspapers from garbage. I start reading. I don't know what I was reading. And then I asked for a Bible. Because I got a Bible in Spanish, you see. So I say, maybe with a Bible in English, I can translate. It wouldn't be more easier for me. And they sent me a penthouse letter book, number four, 417 pages. Penthouse letter book. It's a folk book. You see, I didn't know, I didn't know what it was. The other wait, inmates, wait, 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 The other inmates did. So he asked for a Bible because he wanted to learn English, and the other inmates... I guess thought it would be funny, or I'm not really sure, but that, that's how that's what they gave him. Penthouse letter book number four. So that's what I got. Is what I started reading. So I stay at night when it was quiet and there was no light. Is why my eyes are all messed up now. And I get the light from the hallway, and um, I got a beat up dictionary in Spanish and English, and I will go there and I will go with the letters. I read it seventeen times. That book. The fuck book? Yes. So he taught himself English. That's amazing. But that 17 time, I'm start getting aroused. <laughs> and I got so happy, not because I got aroused, you know. I got so happy because I, I got aroused because I was understanding what I was reading. But now I want to prove to my mother that I didn't do this. And I start writing letters. 175 letters I wrote. I wrote Oprah. I said, I don't know who you are, but they're telling me you're the queen of television. Maybe you know somebody who can test this evidence. They're trying to kill me for something I didn't do. And next to it, I would put a letter in Spanish too. So it was somebody who speaks Spanish. And my English was that bad. They can translate it. One answered me back. Innocent Project of New York. Nina Morrison. Nina Morrison. Yes. Nina Morrison from the Innocent Project and... I got to meet Maria. Remember, I used to have a public defender. I didn't never have a private attorney. I don't know what it's like. And um, she told me she would never lie to me. And that she would work hard and that she thought it was something wrong in my case. They got some paperwork working and, and they would push for DNA. They allow us to test 82 pieces of evidence first. The first time there was two drops of Samantha's blood and then we asked for the rest. Of course, the state agreed to blood the first time, and then once Samantha's blood came back and they had evidence of her confessions, which they withheld from us for anywhere from around two years or maybe longer, hard to say, they objected to any more testing. After two drops of her blood come back, she's admitted that she's killed her family. They object to more DNA testing. But it was granted, thankfully. And she confessed on a number of occasions to a number of different people. Yeah, I think it's somewhere around seven or nine. But this first one was a Baker Act, one of her many Baker Acts, where she had tried to burn the trailer down and sort of set herself on fire. She was like, set some bedding on fire. And she told a neighbor who told the police that demons in her head had made her kill her family. She told her best friend, Nikki, on two separate occasions that she killed her mother when Nikki asked her, what do you do? I heard them. Doing a stabbing motion to her chest. Yeah. Her grandma got stabbed in her chest, according to the uh, medical, examiner. medical examiner. So I had never seen this woman named Nikki in my life. I don't know her. She came forward to the state attorney, and they sent her back. So they didn't want to hear it? No, they don't want to hear it. They say they got the killer. But she contacted my defense attorneys and told them to. Wow. She testified at the post-conviction hearing. post-conviction hearing. Kudos to her for not giving up, right? Because it would have been 
pretty easy for her to go to the police and say, I want to talk. And they say no. And then she goes, well, I tried my best. What am I going to do? Right. But she actually took it to the next level and contacted you. Yeah. And we were, had been piecing it together who she was based on the police report because we could tell that's who the person was in the, in the statement that Samantha had made the statement to. So now they start trying to backpedal, right? Now all of a sudden they're like, wait a minute, we're going to stop cooperating and stop giving you access. And yes. and that's when the dream team really kicks into gear, right? I mean, you had not just you and Nina, but Josh Dubin. Yeah, right? so that was at the retrial. So the post-conviction hearing was done just by myself and Mari Parmer, who's my law partner now, and our investigator, Polly. And then Nina came down for the first two days of the evidentiary hearing in 2013. That was a two-week hearing that we put on tons and tons of witnesses, all the DNA, all of the confessions. And then we lost, of course, at the circuit court level. And we knew that we always had the idea of getting a bigger team on this case. You know, it's one thing when lawyers from my office at the time, you know, stand up before the Florida Supreme Court and say, this is a travesty. It's quite another when we get the Innocence Project and private law firms and, you know, people really fighting for this. It makes a difference. So that was always our plan. And Nina was, of course, amazing and instrumental in getting us help. So we got lawyers from Alabama to do the appeal with us. They did the appeal at the Florida Supreme Court. We all worked on it. And we got the reversal in 2016. And that's when sort of the trial team really came back together. And so my role sort of formally ended in 2016. Um, and then I just consulted with the trial team and, and talked to Clemente every Sunday for two and a half years while he was waiting his retrial. Well, let me tell you something. We have a DNA, a confession for the perpetrator whose DNA was found in the crime scene, which he said she wasn't there. Red fresh, red bright. And then we have a judge we have a judge who keep denying. Now, we don't understand why this judge don't follow the law, right? Later, we find out that she's got this agenda against me, using my case to get a promotion. She stayed a 67-page ruling against me and brag about it. So she was trying to get elevated. Yeah, and used his case. Used my case about it. Yeah. She eventually was recused and did not preside over the retrial. That's when Josh came on, Josh Stephen. He, he did the jury selection and in front of her first time in February of 2018. And it, her, her complete lack of knowledge of the law, I mean, Josh just pointed it out and we were able to recuse her from the case. And then the trial started in October of 2018 with quite a team. Josh picking the jury, Mari Parmer, who's my law partner, Lindsay Boney, Dylan Black, Brooks Proctor, I mean, just Jeff Horowitz. There was like, at one point, Clemente said, what did you tell them? Oh, man, it was, <laughs> it was too many of them, right? And I'm <laughs> like, hey, yo, y'all making me look bad right here. Some of you need to go sit down back. You know, I used to sit some many. of them on the prosecution yeah. side to make sure. Yeah, that it was too many. I, I, to me, I don't want to look like, why he, this guy got so many lawyers? Oh, he got money. He might have done it. So I don't want them to think like that ever. Um, wow, you went from having too little help to, well, you were thinking too much help, but it was not the case. And, and Josh is an amazing guy. I mean, he, uh, it's funny because Nina originally introduced us, I don't know, whatever, a couple, three years ago. And he says to me, uh, you know, I'm a jury selection expert. I go, yeah. He goes, I can look in your eyes and see your soul. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, you know, he's he that guy. Him. He is that guy. He's an amazing he's guy. He's really, really good at that. Yeah, and he was keeping me posted. You know, when he was down there in Florida, arguing, we were talking, and he was giving me the updates, and he was really, um, yeah, it was a very intense time, even for me watching from the sidelines from a 1,000 miles away. So let's get to the, um, the good stuff, right? Okay. So then, finally, your conviction is overturned. On October 27th. 2016. But they kept you on death row anyway. Until December 7th. Yeah, and then back to the county jail. Back to the, back county. To the county jail, right. And, and it's amazing because, you know, I talk to, I give speeches a lot and I talk to civilians all the time about this work and, and about cases like yours. And almost everyone says, but I don't understand, the conviction's overturned, you go home. And that's no. not the way it works. It's not the way it I works. I mean, sometimes it is. But in your case, it certainly was not. And the conviction was overturned, they're going to retry you because they didn't like losing, right? Oh, immediately they, they, they say... Day. Same day. Yeah, same day they say, we are going to retrial this and, case. I mean, this was a unanimous reversal from the Florida Supreme Court in which the opinion said, no longer is Gary the creepy, shadowy figure who lived next door. He's a scapegoat for her crimes. That's seven justices of the Florida Supreme Court calling Samantha 
the murderer, and they're still trying him again. The, okay, okay, yeah. I mean, this is seven justices in the Deep South. Yeah. With a guy who doesn't have the same skin color as they do. I mean, that's saying it in the strongest possible way. That this is That this is not your crime. That this is a huge mistake. You heard those words. How did that feel? So the prison doesn't allow, they require 24-hour notice for calls. So we couldn't even tell him until the next day. So opinions come out every Thursday at 11. The opinion came out. We knew we couldn't get a call to him. But we also knew it was going to be on the news. And so I know I did an interview. I think Lindsay did too. And I was like, well, Monday, if you're listening, <laughs> congratulations. Because we weren't going to get to talk to him until the next day. But guys on the row heard it. Uh, they First. call me, yeah. Hey, Chori. Um, They're banging on the bars. and uh, What? I think you want a new trial. I say, hold on, man. Don't play like that because it's too, it's too soon. It was six months, 20 days. So they take 22 months in answering. And uh, don't play like that, man. You know, that's not funny. I'm serious, man. They say a funny name like yours, like by name, like the ones you have. So, hey, listen up. My neighbor say Somebody say Chori won a new trial. Everybody go to the news and, and trying to find it. And I got a friend named Alex, Alex Pagan, who said, yeah, it's the ugly face in 7.4. <laughs> and we went there and I, they, they were saying, I, I got a, I won. We have limited time left, but in the time that we do have, I want to get to the ultimate victory, right? So they immediately announced they're going to retry you. They're not done fucking with you yet. I can't think of a better way to say that. But now you got the dream team, like we said. And you go for the new trial. And you want to take this one? Sure. We start in November. We had sort of a false start in February. We ended up getting rid of the judge who was clearly biased against him. We start, was in, start in October with the new chief judge, incredibly fair, promised both sides a fair trial and totally delivered. Jury selection's ongoing. Josh is picking the jury. Two critical in-court depositions occurred that really sort of crumbled the state's case. One was uh, the ex-wife of Mark Van Zandt, who discovered the bodies. Two of our lawyers, Mari Parmer and Dylan Black, went to meet with her. She gave a remarkable story in an affidavit that Mark had always told her that Samantha went out the window that night, the night of the murders. He had always alibied her, always said that she was with him all night. Turns out, he was a liar. We had listened to about 1,200 of his jail calls over the summer in which he admitted that he was a liar. Mari Parmer did an in-court deposition of Mark that was just masterful. It was like the climactic scene of a movie where he basically just admitted that he was a pathological liar and his credibility was done. And the second one was Josh did a deposition of Samantha in court where she effectively said, I do a lot of things when I'm drunk. I guess it's possible I did this too. And I don't remember. So between the actual murderer admitting under oath that she maybe committed this crime and her alibi witness admitting that he was a pathological liar and that she had gone out the window that night, their case was done. Were you in the courtroom when you were finally found to be? Yes, I, I, I was. I was numb. Uh, I prayed. I always thank God, always. And uh, to me, it was like I had a bad experience, you know. I was just looking at myself, and I, I was going to remember this. I looking at me, saying, it's over, finally. The jury came in. No, so the state actually announced a null pros. Null pros, which is short for a Latin term that translates to, quote, we shall no longer prosecute. They announced no process. We didn't know what they were going to do. They had asked for extra time to think about it. Turns out they were getting an immigration hold put on him because they had never bothered to do that in the 14 years that he was locked up so that, you know, he couldn't actually walk free from the courtroom, which we were able to rectify later, getting him an immigration bond. So they had to put the ice hold on him, but we still didn't know what they were going to do. We didn't know if they were going to continue to go forward. And they came in. Courtroom was full. We were all sitting there. Nina flew down. We're like, you got to come. We think they're going to drop it. I mean, they had no way forward, really. The state stood up and announced a null pros, and I know I crumbled into a ball, I think, almost on the floor. Um, I couldn't believe it. And the judge was so kind and kind of gave everybody a minute. Uh, I went up and hugged Clemente, and we were all hugging, and then he wanted to speak, and... Do you remember what you said? Yeah. What did you say? I say, <clears throat> God sent you angels, so your feet don't hear frogs. And your anguish, you have called upon me, and if I hear you, 
I will free you and I will glorify you. I will give you many years of life. And I will show you my salvation. Uh, Psalms 91, 14, 15, and 16. Uh, I thank everybody who helped me out. The ones who sent me money. The ones who made me look like a human being. And I say, you don't have an enemy in me. From this humble illegal immigrant, if I can forgive somebody, I forgive whoever done wrong to me. Because I want to live a better life. Um, wow. So I have one more question and then we're going to wrap up. I think I already know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask anyway. Are you bitter about what happened to you? Angry? Bitter, angry is what you ask? Bitter, yeah, bitter, angry. Yeah, it's sort of a similar thing, yeah. Somehow I think it's an injustice. It's, 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 well, I know it's an injustice. Uh, yeah, I could say I'm angry, but I'm not hateful, you know. A long time ago, I let that go because it was killing me. So the way I see it now is I just trying to adjust, man, and I get aggravated for things, maybe because I got stuck so many years ago. But I know it's going to get better. It, it will. It has to be. I have to believe it. And it is, and uh, and it's great to see you here. I almost, when you were talking about breaking down the court, I almost broke down myself. I had to get a little lump in my throat. Um, so the tradition here at Wrongful Conviction is that at the end of each episode, first thing I do is thank you both for coming and being here. Thank Maria, you for having Welcome. Maria thank you. and, of course, Shorty. And then my favorite part of the show is this, because this is the part of the show where I get to stop talking and just listen. And so I would like to now turn it over to you for any final thoughts that you have. Again, thanks for being here and for everything that you're doing. And I wish you, you know, all, all the happiness in the world. And so, Maria, why don't you go first? And then, Jordi, you can close. Sure. Um, thank you so much for having us and for drawing attention to this case. And, you know, obviously very important cause overall. I mean, I think just for the listeners you know, like you said, if they end up on juries, like really listen, hold the state to their burden. Um, but also when the exoneration happens and all the happiness happens, you know, Clemente has a life to live and he's trying to piece his life back together. And it's especially hard for him because he's not allowed to work right now because his immigration case is ongoing. You know, he's fortunate for the benefits and the donations of others. And that's something that we continue to rely on. So I know the Innocence Project is going to do some fundraisers for him. He does some speaking um, and people give him donations for that. I'm fortunate that he and I get to spend, he lives three miles from my house now in a community for exonerees. Um, so we see each other every week for laundry and groceries. But, you know, any kind of donations that listeners are willing to do, um, we'll have that set up pretty quickly. Just really supporting exonerees. It's great to do events like this conference that we're at, but making sure that, you know, after the dust settles and they're home, we continue to support them. So. Yeah, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, just taken back from there, uh, you get out, there's nothing out there for you, you know, after so many years incarcerated and uh, almost everybody turned their back on you family members lost uh, friends going away it's, we need medical we need dental you know we need mental health but always remember there's three sides of this story hers his and the truth they don't test evidence that means they don't want to find out the truth it's that simple. If a defendant is so adamant to test the evidence, if you are an attorney out there, and your client asking you to please test the evidence, maybe you should listen to him. He might be telling you the truth. So thank you for listening, and God bless you all. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. And you know, I'm a proud donor to The Innocence Project. And I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors. 
Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number no. One and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Christoph recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Christoph seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.